0: Exciting news before we jump into today's episode, Pivot is now available for pre-order. If you pre-order before the launch date on September 6th and submit your receipt at pivotmethod.com slash pre-order, I will send you the awesome bonus bundle of pre-order goodies, which includes a signed book plate from me, access to my entire 20 plus page behind the book toolkit on every tool and template I use to write, edit and market pivot, as well as access to the pivot playlist, a free sample chapter, a private call with me. And a lot more. I'm gonna be adding to it until the launch date. So order the book. You can go on Amazon at bit.ly slash pivot book or head on over to the website at pivotmethod.com slash preorder. Thank you so much in advance. And the countdown is on. Now for today's show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pivot Podcast. I'm really excited to have one of my earliest blogosphere friends here on the show today, Srini Rao. He is the host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast and founder of Unmistakable Media. Since starting the show as a podcast for bloggers at the beginning of 2010, Srini has interviewed over 600 people from all walks of life, including entrepreneurs, authors, artists, performance psychologists, and even bank robbers among many other fascinating people. Shrini's latest book, which is the topic of today's show, is Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best, and it hit stands this week. When he's not using the internet to make things, he's out chasing waves and an avid surfer. Shrini, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. I I hope I can live up to that introduction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Of course. It's so wild to think that you first interviewed me for you were doing video stuff at the time. I think it was 2009, maybe 2010. And it's amazing to see how interviewing has been such a common thread throughout everything you've done these last seven or eight years.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, I mean, we started in 2009, um, really as the podcast for bloggers where, uh, it, you know, more than anything, it was an accident, a very accidental sort of start. It wasn't like I had this plan when I set out, you know, cause I started out with a blog like most people. And the byproduct of that blog was this weekly interview series called interviews with up and coming bloggers. And I'm pretty sure you were probably in the first hundred interviews that I ever did. Um, cause I know I've known you for a very, very long time and you know, it, It really, you know, I was in this course, and one of the lessons was to, you know, uh, know, every week there was a lesson, and each lesson was the kind of thing that you could do in one week, very easily. And I, you know, since I didn't have a job and I, you know, just graduated from business school, I was like, okay, well, you know, let me dedicate myself to this thing. How hard can it be? I have all this time. And so one of the lessons was interview somebody as a way to get traffic to your blog. And so I did one interview, and then that led to a second one, and the third one, and so on, until here we are, you know, six year, no, maybe seven years later later, 600 interviews and Unmistakable Creative is, is, you know, far, like, it's needless to say, the ship sailed off course.
0: (laughs) What have you learned doing 600 interviews, either about people or about podcasting?
1: Okay. So I, I think personally, I think what I've learned about podcasting is far less interesting than what I've learned about people because I mean, what I've learned about podcasting, you can go and read, um, and every, you know, marketer's guide to podcasting or whatever, you know, podcasting for dummies. I mean, what I've learned about people, God, I mean, it, it's, it has been, you know, it's so funny because in some ways, you know, like the original blog was called the school of life. And I guess you could say, you know, creating unmistakable creative gave me my own school of life in a lot of ways. uh. I mean, you know, the thing is that you 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 see so many different ways in which people somehow arrive at where they're at. You know, like I, I've always said, straight and narrow paths are not what usually lead to interesting destinations. And, I mean, no matter who it is from, you know, like you said, a bank robber to a drug dealer to a performance psychologist to uh, an entrepreneur to a venture capitalist, I mean, every one of them has had an appearance on the show. And when you look back at how they've arrived where they're at, the path is almost never linear. It's not this sort of plotted out trajectory and life plan. Um, you know, everybody's life somehow doesn't go according to plan. Uh, and I, I remember, I think I, I, one of the very first posts you ever commented on that I, I wrote at the school of life was this piece titled when life doesn't go according to plan, which I, I have no idea if you can even find it yes. anymore. Oh um, but it, you know, it doesn't. And so it, what I, I think one of the big things I've learned, uh, I mean, like I said, I mean, to, to comprise, you know, lessons i learned about people in psychology, you know, from 600 interviews would take an entire book, um, bigger than the one that I wrote. <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the thing mm. is when our lives don't go according to plan, Uh, we can fight and we can resist whatever has happened or we can see that as opportunity. You know, I I mean, if I look back at my life and and this is fresh on my mind because I was writing about this in the morning, From something bad, there has always been something good. And, of course, it doesn't seem like it at the time because, you know, when something bad happens, you're consumed by that thing that's bad. And it seems like the worst thing in the world because it's happening to you. It's all consuming. It's all you can think about. You know, anybody who's ever had a breakup knows this. You're basically, like, consumed with grief and shit and tears and – um and and you you know you think that it's the end of the world but you know like i look back at okay i graduated from business school and i didn't have a job which you know at the time was the worst imaginable thing you know graduation was more like a funeral like i i don't really look at the my graduation for pepperdine uh, for my mba program as one of the highlights of my life in fact i look at it as one of the low points of my life because you know i was melting in a cap and gown no job you know on you know uh, waiting for me on graduation and you know my i remember i, very, I remember very distinctly my parents were like, Hey, we'll go celebrate tomorrow. I'm like, there's nothing to celebrate. This is my funeral. Um, and, but, but the funny thing is from that came two things that I could dedicate my life to, which were surfing and writing during that seven or eight month period. And both those things fundamentally altered the course of my life in a way that they never would have. I mean, you know, like how different would things have been right now if I'd had a job waiting up on graduation? Um, You know, like 2014, you read the book was was probably the worst year of my life. And from the worst year of the of my life, I got one of the best friends of my life, um, Brian, my business partner, and you know Derek, who's also on our team. Like, you know, those are good things that came out of something really bad. And then at the beginning of 2015, you know, to add insult to injury, right when you thought things couldn't get any more devastating, this thing that I had built with my own two hands, this this conference and event that had been wildly successful the year before, um, after already going through a horrible 2014, right at the beginning of 2015, we had to pull the plug because we. We didn't sell enough tickets, you know, in that same week, my, my business partner got into a a car accident in which he almost died. Um, it was, I mean, like he got really lucky because the, the person who hit him hit his back door, if it had been the front door, like, you know, just a thing. And I remember telling him, I said, Hey, by the way, I'm like, you should know at the beginning of 2010, I was having, you know, I, I got in a car accident in a week. Somebody stole my towel from the beach when I was surfing along with my car keys. And that ended up being one of the best years of my life. So, you know, I, I think maybe the, the, one of the bigger lessons is something good always seems to come from, you know, something that in the moment seems really bad. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing is that uh, everybody has their challenges, right? There's there's no way that you're going to go through this entire experience, especially when you attempt to do things of great significance. There's It's just inevitable that you're going to end up having situations that are challenging or push you to your limits. And so I think, you know, in a lot of ways, What I've learned about people is is managing psychology through dark times. I mean, it's, it's something that I've found as a common thread. It seems like every single person that I interview has this sort of crucible, but that thing becomes a very defining moment in their life. Um, and then, you know, probably the big one, you know, which, you know, we'll wrap this sort of monologue with this and it's something that a mentor told me and I I try to remember this almost to the point where I, you know, think I should probably go get it tattooed on one of my arms is he says, you know, your temporary circumstances don't have to become your permanent identity. And in so many cases they do for so many people. Mm. So
0: I love how you say in the book that our scars become shells that later protect us in some way if we let them, if we're open to that darkness, like you said
1: hmm yeah I mean you the thing is that you know often the the kind of strength you gain uh you, you know the resilience you developed is only developed by going through tough things like you can't get it any other way you know um I, I was having a conversation with uh, one of our listeners, a guy named Jeff Sandquist. and I said, you know like there's a real difference between reading about something and experiencing it, so like I've never lost a parent, and you know I I can read every book imaginable about grief and loss of parents. And, you know, I can, you know, think about it and talk about it and intellectually understand it. But somebody who's actually gone through that experience is going to have a level of understanding about it that I never will. And the only way they can gain that kind of strength is by, by experience.
0: One of the things that completely jumped off the page is your definition of unmistakable. So I would love for you to share what your definition of unmistakable art is. Sure. And then the second part is I'm curious how these uh, darkness, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn, these blessings in disguise. How do you think that relates to creating unmistakable art? Two part question for you.
1: Yeah. So two part question. So let's, let's talk about how do I define unmistakable art? So I, I think for the purposes of answering that question, we need to define both art and unmistakable, right? Because typically I think when we think of art, like the, you know, Seth Godin always says art is not necessarily the industrial act of putting paint on a canvas, right? Because what you do as a writer, what you do as a podcaster, what you do as a coach is art. What I do as a storyteller, as a podcaster, as a producer of animated shorts, you name it, that's art when nancy Duarte designs a slide pre- slide presentation it's art because it's beautiful i mean if you've ever seen something she's done she's taken something as mind numbing and mundane seeming as powerpoint <laughs> it's true, and she's like
0: my achilles heel <laughs> yeah
1: and she's she's turned it into a work of art like i mean how many people can say that by the way Al Gore came to us to have a presentation design that drove significant amounts of environmental change and was the basis for the film and inconvenient truth. I mean, not many people can point to a PowerPoint presentation that they designed That's the seed for a film that is done by a former vice president. That's, you, you know, so that that's art in terms of unmistakable. I mean, the way I define unmistakable is that it's something so distinctive that nobody could have done, but you, and it's immediately recognized as something that only you could have done or something that you did. And, and the example, I think that comes up over and over again for me in many conversations is my friend, Mars Dorian, because if you, you know, or anybody listening to this knows, um, Mars Dorian, like you can take one look at something he's done and you're like, the only person who could have done that is Mars. Um, it's so, it's so, he's such a
0: perfect example. It is. So
1: I mean, it, you, Mars's stuff rolls through your Facebook feed and you're like, yeah, Mars did that. I can take, you know, I, he wouldn't even put a signature on it. I know that like I can take one look at any book cover that Mars has done. And so really, I mean, the, the funny thing is the sort of core idea of unmistakable came from him, uh, at a conversation that I had with him. So it was, you know, very fitting that he ended up doing all the chapter illustrations in the book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and you know the the other place that this came from, I think, was you know you asked what did I learn from hundreds of interviews, like you know i I started to notice certain patterns when i um was looking especially at people who were starting things um and, and you know kind of comparing them to the people who had built presences or who had managed to get to a certain point of of success in reaching an audience, or you know however you define success um you know we what happens is that you often see this thing that happens where uh, people who are starting something or building something, they will look to some sort of authority figure, and they buy into this very sort of debilitating narrative that if you do exactly as some authority figure says, you will get exactly the result that they have promised. And you know, if you notice, people like Seth Godin, whose work influences a lot of people, Seth Godin doesn't offer you any tactical advice. It's very rare you'll come away with a from reading a Seth Godin book with ten insights on or ten actionable insights on how to do X, Y, Z. What's funny is you'll come away with a hundred that you would have never come up with if he had given you the XYZ. And the thing is that in that process of constantly looking to an authority figure to validate everything that we do or following supposedly step by step by step this blueprint or plan that is in their course or in their coaching program, what we end up doing is we, you know, we play it safe. And so at best, what you end up with is a pale imitation of, of one of your predecessors or somebody who is your mentor. And at worst, something that gets completely ignored because in that process of following the instructions, to the letter and saying, okay, I'm going to do exactly as this authority figure or this course or this program tells me to do instinct and intuition and all the things that you would have never thought of on your own. Uh, or you would have thought of on your own get, get denied. So like you know you look at unmistakable creative. You land on our website, you know it it doesn't follow any of the rules of so called you know website best practices and you know our about pages of a cartoon, which is probably not good for SEO and, and stuff like that. <laughs> well, um,
0: it, it was so powerful too. Just want to say on the subject of validation, at one point in the book you say your need for your parents' validation was a bottomless pit, and that validation is like a drug. That the more we depend on it, the higher dosage we need for it to work and. And that's so interesting how you couple that need for validation with a hindrance to unmistakable Mm -hmm. art. And then what I love about unmistakable is it raises the bar. There's so much out there about be creative or what's your purpose? You know, these really broad, sweeping cliches. And when I read your book, I was so inspired to think that's the next level is what is unmistakable? What is yours without even a need for a signature? Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily easy to do. I'm wondering no. if you have, yeah.
1: So so that's the thing, right? If it was easy, then, you know, everybody would do it. Like, and, and the thing is, it's not supposed to be easy to do. It's supposed to be hard. Um, it's supposed to take years of work you know, we, we don't want to admit this, you know, the, the whole 10 year overnight success is a a cliche, but it's a cliche for good reason because there's enough evidence to support that. Um, you know, like, I mean, you, you've known my work since 2009. I didn't fall out of the womb this way. Um, (laughs) and it's very easy to think that I think when, when we don't know, uh, you know, what has actually gone into somebody's work. And, and then the other thing is, you know, I've gotten a world-class education from people who are just phenomenal at what they do, um, what do you and think so, the
0: ingredients are? Like if you had to pull out even either what you've learned from yeah, people you've yeah. interviewed or for yourself,
1: Who I think longevity
0: is like, one. Like longevity, well, yeah, and longevity is but it's certainly not enough. Yeah,
1: longevity, <laughs> longevity and commitment. And I, you know, I've said this on a handful of interviews, um, but I think it bears repeating. I think our perception of longevity is really warped uh, in the world that we live in because what happens is we have sort of access to what I call instant applause. Um, like we have never had before, and that's only really happened in the last ten years or so because you know uh, our mm-hmm. ability to create things and share our stories and share our ideas has been completely democratized. So you know, if you want instant applause, all you have to do is take a picture of yourself with a baby and put it on Facebook. I know, <laughs> or because a
0: puppy. I
1: do. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, well, I know because every time I meet uh, you know a friend or a cousin or somebody who has a really cute baby, I'm a single guy, so I take a picture with one of their kids and put it on Facebook, and so you know, I get to see all these comments from girls, and I'm like, okay, that's you know, that, that's just proof of what I'm talking about. But the thing is that that's, you know, that's not lasting. Like you can't create a career off of something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, all joking aside, the thing is that your priority has to be sort of a long lasting connection that occurs between a creator and audience. And that is something that is built over time. So, you know, we, we don't think of longevity in terms of, you know, for most people, it's like, Oh, a year, that's a really long time. I'm like, no, it's not.
0: Yes. (laughs) I love that you said that in the book.
1: Yeah, it's really not. I mean, a year is is a really minuscule amount of time if you're serious about what you're trying to do. Um so so the, you know, obviously, you know, time is one of those critical ingredients. Um, I think you know what you're exposed to is also a critical ingredient because I, I think the the probably the big advantage I've had is the sheer volume of such intelligent, thoughtful, and you know creative and insanely interesting people that I have been exposed to. You know, like my sort of subset that I my, my sort of sample that I draw from is not just sort of bloggers and online marketers, but it's you know like you said, uh, you know artists and bank robbers and, you know, people who've done amazing work that, you know, they've created social movements. They've written things that, you know, are really honestly meant to be turned into movies because, you know, I, I guess for me, you know, I, I'd never looked at, okay, you know, will interviewing this person, make the show grow, or is this going to be some popular person? It's almost never the the wildly popular, you know, well-known people that become our most, uh, you know, liked interviews. It's the people that nobody has ever heard of. And and that's one of the comments I'll often get is where do you find these people? And so I, I think curiosity, so what we you know if, to, to if you 're really going to extract an ingredient from that it 's curiosity. Um, almost all my decisions about what I work on um, you know what I do and, and what I want to try is based on curiosity so i 'll give you an example uh, you know from something that i 'm working on in the moment uh, so i 'm giving a keynote on Friday at this event i 'm the opening keynote for it, and you know i've been you know, I've been watching my friend Eric Wall, who's a graffiti artist and a keynote speaker. He mixes live music and painting and all this stuff into this amazing keynote. And I'm like, well, I can't paint, so I'm not going to try that. That would be a disaster. Um, but the music part always really appealed to me. Music has always played a big role in my life. So, you know, I, I was in band in high school, and you know, if you see our animated shorts, you can see the role that music played. And music does something very special to dialogue. It changes dialogue um, and makes it much more emotionally compelling. I mean, all you have to do is watch a TV show like Friday Night Lights or Watch like you know the movie Joe Black, Meet Joe Black, and and you know just isolate a monologue and, and listen to how music brings about emotion. And so I thought a lot about that. I was like, wow, like why couldn't I take that into the keynote speaking room? And so you know when I'm closing the talk, I've figured out a way to actually incorporate um, instrumental music into the closing of the talk in such a way that it takes the entire last thirty to forty five seconds of the talk and amplifies the emotion by using music. So that's that, and and, you know, why am I doing that? Because I'm curious, I wanna see whether this theory of mine will work. And you know, what? I mean, there's nothing to lose really. And so that sort of curiosity, innate curiosity Um, And then, you know, the funny thing is that I borrowed that from somebody else, but I'm incorporating it into my work in a way that it it is my own. Uh, You know, I mean, the the artwork at Unmistakable Creative, that's not a coincidence. You know, I spent 30 days teaching myself how to draw only to discover that I couldn't draw. But I I figured out that I could collaborate with people like Mars Dorian to, to really bring all of my ideas to life visually. So you've got sort of, I guess, if we're looking at ingredients, longevity, curiosity, collaboration, and um, yeah, longevity curiosity. And, and labor- i add,
0: intuition. And then let's and, yeah, come full circle. So- the the idea about adversity. I actually think that those really challenging times, as you use the surfing meta- metaphor, the impact zone. Mm-hmm. That that has got to fuel unmistakability. That every time we get knocked down and we learn how to pull ourselves back up. Yeah. It's got to feed the art somehow. I'm curious, this latest round for you, you said 2014 was really excruciatingly difficult and you write about it very poignantly in the book. How do you think that has further shaped your views on on unmistakability?
1: Well, the thing is, I think, you know, difficult things teach you a lot about resilience and persistence, which takes us back to longevity, right? So it's kind of like, okay, you know, you make it through that. You're like, wait a minute, I've made it through that you know, it's it's funny. One of, my, one of my mentors also says, you know, your problems don't go away. What changes is your capacity to handle them. So yes. like you end up being able to take on bigger things. You know, it's, you, know you and I were chatting just a few days ago and, and like I was telling you the kinds of things that I'm bitching about. I'm like, OK, this is ridiculous. Like None of these are <laughs> yes. these are like, you know, like you listen to the quality of the problem. You're like, OK, yes. that, you know, Brian is like, these are champagne problems, dude. I'm like, yeah, no, fair enough.
0: Um, I also think <laughs> adversity like reaffirms commitment that that every time you get knocked down for for, while trying to pursue your art whatever that is it reaffirms it asks you to recommit and re-up and get better at it and that those experiences that's part of it too at least for me it's like i'm not letting go of this you know and you even (laughs) talk about like kind of too invested to quit the idea of, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and and that's the thing, right, is, is, you know, you, so the other thing is, I think, you know, maybe another thing worth mentioning about the impact zone, right, is there's this idea that, um, you know, like you're going to avoid being wrong, you're going to avoid screwing up, or you know, like the, you're going to avoid things blowing up in your face because we have this deep seated fear of being wrong. Um, that I, I think in my mind, you know, goes all the way back to when we were kids because you, know, you remember those moments in, in class where you know, you raise your hand when you have the right answer, keep quiet when you don't know you have the right answer, and God forbid you raise your hand when you think you have the right answer only to find out you have the wrong answer. Well, that's humiliating. Um, and the stakes keep getting higher as you get older, so you stop taking risks and your capacity for. For risk goes down. But, you know, you look at the impact zone, I always say, you know, that there's, you know, there's no way that you can avoid, the only way to avoid being in the impact zone is not to surf because inevitably at some point or another, you're going to end up in the impact zone. If you're in the water, it's just, you know, part of surfing. And I think it's part of life as well. Um, I mean, as far as how it fuels unmistakability, you know, you know, we talked about resistance and, 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 you know, uh, resilience and persistence, but you know, I think the, the other thing is, um, you know, somebody asked me the other day on Twitter, they're like, you know, how do you deal with creative blocks when the circumstances of your life are, are troubling to you? I said, you know, you, you view your circumstances as colors to paint with mm-hmm. um, and they will allow you to paint in a way you couldn't paint before and allow you to see what you could never see in any other way. Uh, you know, and I think it's a it's a real test of, you know, like you said, commitment and faith. But I, I think it it also it's revealing. It's revealing in terms of, you know, what it reveals about you as a person, what it reveals about the people around you, um, and many, many other things. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I talked about the fact that like in the book I I said, you know, for, I think God knows how long, I mean, I'm 38 now for 36 years. I, you know, the idea of seeing a therapist made me cringe. I was like, Therapy is for crazy people, not for people like me, Um, until I found myself in a therapist office and wondered why I hadn't gotten there sooner. You know, I thought, wow, I should have actually come and done this, you know, way early on. It would have been a, a good move, you know, not that I had any major issues to solve, but I would have, you know, avoided a lot of problems. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think that that there's really more than anything I would say is, is, you know, viewing those things as colors to paint with. And, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself what you learn from it. I mean, for us as a business, what we realized was, you know, our foundation was shaky. Um, you know, we had existed really as a hodgepodge of projects, many of which made a lot of money, but you know, over the long haul, um, our sort of core of, of the brand unmistakable and and the podcast suffered because we poured all this energy into this event. And when it was done, it was like this just deflation, you know? So I, I've, I learned probably the biggest thing from that experience was momentum and how important momentum is. Like, you know, I, people will ask, you know, what are you going to do on Tuesday after your book comes out? I'm going to tell them, start the second book. Probably I will be writing on Tuesday morning because that's what I do every day. Uh, you know, it's just another day as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it, you know, like, don't get me wrong. I'm incredibly grateful. It's exciting, but I think, you know, there's this great line in in Stephen Pressfield's book, do the work where, you know, I think it's the very end of it. And he tells, um, the story of how he goes to Paul Rink's house, his mentor, um, and he says, you know, I told him what I did, that I'd finished something, and he said, great, now start the next one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, there's a reason for that because um, creative momentum is incredibly powerful. If you lose it, it's also incredibly detrimental. It's very hard to get it back, and it takes a long time to build up to that. So, you know, I, I think those are, those are some of the big lessons that come from, you know, bigger challenges that I've dealt with.
0: Speaking of the book coming out, one of the sections I really loved in the book is called the drop, Ah. and you describe it as the liminal moment between paddling and standing is known as the drop. Even though the drop is brief, it determines what the entire ride will be like. I'm, as you know, really interested in studying change, and so much of change is being in a liminal space. and. And now here you are, your book comes out this week, You're in the Drop. So mm-hmm. talk to me about that, like both for you personally. And why do you say that the drop determines what the entire ride will be like? Because I'm not a surfer, but I'm curious okay. yeah. <laughs> how that so, informs the rest um, of the ride.
1: It might, it might help to do, you know, uh, so just for, for the sake of clarity for anybody listening, um, I will try to explain it as best I can. I would recommend that you actually like just do a search for a surfing video on YouTube also because it will make it that much clearer. To um, surf or something, <laughs> yeah. Which would be even better. Yeah. Uh, not that I want more people in the water, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the thing is that you know there. So there's a lot of elements of surfing where you know like it requires a tremendous amount of presence a, a, you know a, a decent amount of athletic skill but the drop really is what, what here's what happens basically is you're paddling paddling so you see a wave coming you start paddling so you can catch that wave and if you've ever seen waves what you um you may not know if you're not a surfer is like watch surfing videos surfers don't ride straight they ride parallel to the wave uh so you're actually parallel you know and the wave is parallel so the drop is the moment between when you push yourself up on the board and when you're actually standing. And if you screw the drop up or if you hesitate on the drop or if you are choppy on the drop, like there's a couple of things that happen. If you hesitate, it's actually worse than committing completely and falling. Because sometimes, if you hesitate, you're going to get tossed anyways by the wave, and then you end up you know in situations that are are hairy and messy and, and because you you hesitated, you have a chance you know that your board will hit you in the face, and all sorts of stuff can go wrong. Um, whereas if you fully commit, you'll fall, but the thing is that you were fully committed so the fall is easier. like your board was basically you, the, the way you approached it was set up in such a way that the fall was going to be something you could handle. and you know the, the thing is in that moment, um, if the drop is smooth, it determines literally what the entire ride will bike. Like, so if your drop is, is, you know, like there are moments when I've hesitated on the drop and I've made a wave, but throughout the entire wave, I'm struggling to, you know, stay on the board without falling and adjusting my balance and doing all of this stuff because I wasn't committed in my mind. Like I, I hesitated, I wasn't fully just all the way in. And it's funny cause you're not the first person to mention that that same phrase has come up maybe a dozen times. My friend, Erica Learmark sent me a text about it yesterday. Every person in their life who is in a career transition or a change of some sort has mentioned this to me. And
0: P.S. Erica Learmark was a former stripper now turned business coach who you recently interviewed and I've been following her work for years. Yeah. Talk about a pivot. Amazing. Yeah. I okay. mean, that's,
1: that's, <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, and so pivot is, you know, exactly. I mean, you're, you're really, I know, I, now I know why it resonated with you because I mean, the core of your upcoming book is about this, is making changes. Um, so the thing I think the drop really is, is about, and this is about change. If we're, if we're talking about change is often, you know, our attempt to change is a very half-assed commitment. It's like one foot in, one foot out. And so the result is that we're flailing. We don't go all the way in. And I'll kind of give you an example from my own life about this. Um, you know, talking about the book coming out is probably not the best example, but, uh, in 2013 you know greg hartle who's a mentor of mine he basically said you know shreen do you want to be doing any of these things in 5 years like i you know all the things i'd done in you know the time that we had built uh you know what had been school of life and broadcast fm like i had been a book marketing strategist for an author i had updated social media for a pro surfer which was the worst gig ever um I, you know, was a freelance writer at a, a website called Search Engine Journal where I had to write about marketing. And, you know, I, I looked at all of these things like, do you want to do any of these things in five years? And I was like, not really. And so we basically said, okay, we're not going to do any more of those things. We're going to focus entirely on the podcast. And that's going to be the core. Um, which is scary because you're saying, okay, you know, like these, all these things that are sources of revenue, I'm willing to, to walk away from you know, and then in the book, I also give the example of Pixar. Uh, you know, like if, if for those of you who are not familiar with the history of Pixar, I mean, they didn't start out making these amazing movies. I mean, it was about 20 years before they started making these incredible movies. Um, you know, it was like John Lasseter and Steve Jobs and, and like, I think Lucas sold a division of Lucasfilm to these guys, um, which ended up being spun out as Pixar, but they were actually making this graphical image computer, which is, is what all these films ended up being made on eventually. And somewhere I think they realized they're like, okay, we, you know, they, they couldn't, you know, they were in the red really deep because they were spending so much money on these computers. And Ed Catamol said, you know, the only way to save Pixar at that point was to do what they had been yearning to do from the outset, which was to, you know, do computer animation. And so what ends up happening, of course, is, you know, a string of hits and, you know, nothing. I mean, I don't know that Pixar has made any bad movies, um, but I mean, that was 20 years in the making before you get to that point, which means, you know, like the bigger the wave, the crazier, the more ambitious the idea, the more committed you have to be to seeing it through from the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really, you know, I think the drop is a metaphor for commitment. And, you know, the the more committed you are, the more cha- more likely the change is to happen. Whereas if your commitment is, you know, on the fence and this isn't, you know, I mean, I think we, we have to be careful about, um, you know, making this seem like a narrative about quit your job and, you know, just go and change the world and don't right. worry about security, which, which is nonsense because, you know, people have real responsibility. So I want to make sure that I'm, you know, mindful of that in saying this. So that's not what the lesson here is, but even in the process of those things, you know, are you really committed? Does that, you know, are you going to show up every day and work on this thing that you say you want in your life that will allow you to, to make this transition that you want to make? Like, whereas, you know, like you, you look at a lot of people, when they attempt to change, when they attempt to do something, you know, and this is another thing I think I said in the book about, you know, you look at certain people have these like very sudden bursts of inspiration that, you know, for a Saturday afternoon, they're like, okay, I'm going to try to change the world this afternoon and I'm going to make my dent on the internet. And so the internet is basically littered with the digital graveyards of people who have attempted stuff like this. And I know because, you know, a good amount of my earlier projects are like this where I was like, ah, okay, you know, I'm going to try to do this in afternoon. And you you kind of realize once you start to, to tease apart a lot of these stories that, wow, Okay, wait a minute. These are many, many years in the making. So I don't know. I I know I kind of went off on a bunch of different tangents. Well, I love the
0: way I love the way you define the drop and that it's about commitment and clarified. Thank you for clarifying. It's not about being reckless. In fact, when I hear you talk about it, you have a, a great memento mori type question in the book about reflecting on death and those of ourselves and the ones around us. And you say, have I created the most audacious and ambitious pieces of art and started the most daring projects that I want to see exist in the world? And that to me, that's the commitment. It's to the most audacious and ambitious pieces of art that each of us can and wants to, can create and wants to see. And to me, that's what I love about the concept of unmistakable. It's again, it raises the bar. It's not just saying, are you out there surfing? No, it's like, are you committing to the drop? Are you committing to taking risks to truly put yourself out there? And as you said, it's not, it's not always easy to understand what our unique stamp or blueprint or thumbprint is that we leave on the world, but that the process is part of the fun.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, not all yeah. Fun. <laughs> well, some, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, 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 I think the part of it is that, you know, you have to be willing to be misunderstood, criticized and, and all these things, you know, uh, and your choices, you know, potentially will be frowned upon in the short run, you know, like I think there was a certain point at which my parents really began to question this. And, uh, at the, the beginning of, of 2015, I, I, I was at a point where I was beginning to question it. So I, I said, listen, I'm like, you know, my business partner, Brian, gave me some of the best piece of best piece of advice ever. He said, look, they just want to see that you're not going to chase some pipe dream forever that's going nowhere. He said, here's how you appease them. He said, tell them that you'll look for a job by the end of the year if it hasn't worked out. And I so it. I did. And then, you know, the the book happened and they kind of were like, okay, wait a minute. This isn't a joke anymore. You're, yes. you're serious. Um, I think so
0: often our friends and family, they just want to make sure we're fed and safe yeah. and have a roof over our head. And so, so as long as uh, they don't yeah. have a plan. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, friends and family are, are, you know, they're, I mean, they all mean well. And that's what we have to be very understanding of is that they mean well, but they don't necessarily want what's best for you. They want what's good for you. And there's a difference.
0: One of the things I also really love is you suggest a 30 day project that has nothing to do with your work Oh yeah, as a way to get the creative juices flowing. I love that. I want to do that. I'm going to do so, that homework for everybody listening.
1: <laughs> that is so powerful. I can't, you know, you asked me what is one of the elements of Unmistakable. I mean, that honestly is one of the things I attribute to how I see see the world now. You know, that drawing project led to the idea of animated shorts. It led to all the album covers that you see. It led to working with Mars. I mean, you know, like when you open this book, you can tell like there's a lot of thought behind visuals, you know, like every chapter had illustrations. It's not just a chapter, you know, heading. Um, you know, even the book cover, the amount of, of back and forth that went into design and, and, you know, making sure that when you opened it, it like, we were very adamant They're like, this cannot look like a business book. In fact, it, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, we were trying to find this blend between comics and and art and, you know, hopefully we, we've accomplished that. But again, you know, I, I can trace almost all of it back to a 30 day project where I taught myself how to draw. You know, I said, you know, that project, um, was the impetus for us going from being a website to being a brand.
0: Unmistakable. Why only is better than best out this week, which is so exciting. Where can people find you if they want to keep in touch?
1: Yeah. So unmistakablecreative.com uh, is where you can find our work. Um, the podcast, you can subscribe through to iTunes. Um, and then if you go to com slash book, you'll find info there. And of course it's in bookstores and uh, audible and Amazon.
0: Awesome. Shrini, you're amazing. It's been so fun to watch your epic progress over the years, and I'm just really glad to be walking these paths together.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been really fun.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always?